0: If your roof starts to leak, or your floors really squeak, you live in a money pit. Money pit. If your basement needs a pump, or your place looks like a dump, live in a money pit. Money pit. Pick up the telephone, fix up your home, sweet home. I gotta hate it.
1: Coast to coast and floorboards to shingles, this is The Money Pit, home improvement show. I'm Tom Kreitler.
2: And I'm Leslie Segretti.
1: Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, Have you started to make a list of New Year's resolutions yet? Have you already broken some of those resolutions? (laughs) Well, we're going to help you keep them when it comes to your house. If you've got a project you've promised yourself you want to get done, we will not stand in your way. We will help you get it done. Just call us with questions. Call us with, you know, if you don't know where to start. If you think you're going to get stuck, if you're wondering if you can do it yourself, should you hire a pro? How do you hire a pro? You know, whatever it is, that's what we do. We've been doing this for over 20 years, and uh, this is a brand new season for the Money Pit Radio Show and the Money Pit Podcast, and we were so excited to be here to help you get those jobs done. So first up on today's edition, do you enjoy watching birds visit your yard during the warmer months, but you miss them in the winter? Well, guess what? You don't have to. We've got tips to help attract visits from your fine-feathered friends all year long, even in the coldest of months. All right, that sounds fun.
2: And if you've made a resolution to take more time to enjoy the little pleasures, we've got a great idea for you. How about creating a studio space so you can focus on a pastime that you've always wanted to take on? We're going to share some tips on that in just a bit.
1: And here's a common plumbing problem that may have a very simple solution. Stinky odors coming from your sink drains. We've got a hack that can help. But first, we
2: need to know what you need to know. So how can we help you get started with projects that you've got planned for 2022? Regardless of how large or small that project is, you definitely need some help getting started in the right direction, and we can lend a hand
1: couple of ways to get in touch with us. You can call us 24 7 at 888 Money Pit. That's 888 666 3974. Or post your questions to moneypit.com. Let's get to it. Leslie, who's first?
2: Kayla in Iowa, you've got the money pit. How can we help you today? Just got married and moved into a new
3: home. And it already had a Honeywell whole home humidifier installed in it. And um, it seemed like a dream come true. I thought it was going to be amazing. But, um, we have 100 amp service, and every now and then our breaker will trip, and, um, I, you don't even know downstairs unless you're down there. And, um, I've gone down a couple times, and it was, the basement is flooded, and it floods, like, um, over into the other room. Like, into the where I eventually want to lay carpet and have, like, a family room.
1: Is that because the dehumidifier uh, condensate pump stops working?
3: I'm not sure what it is. There's, like, an overfill whole, um, thing for it. And I'm assuming it's supposed to lead to a drain, but the drain is in... Um, the laundry room, which is in the opposite direction. Okay. So
1: when everything is working correctly, this dehumidifier is going to take moisture out of the air, drop it into a reservoir, which you either have to empty or it will pump out somewhere. Usually if it's got a condensate pump associated with it, it could pump up sort of against gravity and there's a clear plastic tube that goes out and leads to a drain somewhere or even outside the house. If you have a power failure, you know, it's not going to work um and it might um actually start to leak maybe back into that room where you are of course the dehumidifier de- de- is not working at that time so it's not going to leak for long but i could see how it could create a bit of a puddle so your problem is not so much with the dehumidifier but why you're having a problem uh, popping these breakers now 100 amp service is a uh, service is actually a pretty darn good service and it it frequently doesn't get the respect it deserves. When these breakers pop, it's not usually because you're pulling more than 100 amps, it's because whatever circuit you have on this particular dehumidifier on is uh, needs to be improved, perhaps by adding an additional circuit. But the service for the house should be fine.
3: Okay. Um, it does have the clear hose that leads outside.
1: That's what's going on. When your power goes out, the pump stops working, and that's why it's leaking. Okay. So focus on getting Uh, this plugged into a circuit that is a little bit bigger than what you have right now. An electrician could could help you sort this out, but it's not a big deal to add an additional circuit just for that device.
3: All right. Sounds good.
1: All right. Good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit.
2: Manny from Rhode Island is on the line. He's got a question about the water lines. What's going on?
3: Every few months, I get a mailing letting me know that I'm responsible for the water line from the
1: street to my home should it break. And what they're offering me is, is
3: basically an insurance policy that would cover, one policy would cover 10 to up to $10,000 for a day of work, and they get the companies to do the work. And then a more advanced policy would cover up to $15,000. I wanted to get your take on what you thought about
1: this insurance policy and the probabilities
3: of having this kind of a problem.
2: Geez, Manny, I can relate. You know, Tom, I feel like I get these all the time. It's the water line. It's the sewer line. It's the main. It's the gas line. Everything from your house to the street, you are responsible for. I mean, I feel like they're more scare tactics because I kind of just recycle them.
1: Yeah, I, I think for the most part, they are. First of all, just to be really clear, these are not insurance policies because they're not regulated by the insurance laws of the state. What they are are service contracts. Uh, it's the same kind of a service contract you might get on an appliance.
2: Right. Well, I have service contracts for the heating system in the house. I'm like, you know.
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. legitimate. The whole heating system. That is legitimate, right? Exactly. But for a service contract for the pipe that brings the water into your house, let me say this. If I had a really old house and I had a really old main water pipe that was made out of steel, <laughs> which should have been replaced 30 years ago, I might get a service contract on that pipe. But for the most part, if you've got uh, you know a, a plastic water entry line like most people do, I would not buy these things at all. The chances of this being a problem are really, really small. And if it happens, it happens. But I just don't think it's worth the money to ensure against this. I mean, here's another good example. You know, my mom has a house in Florida and they love to sell her service contracts for subterranean termites. First of all, our house is made of concrete, but let's not let the facts get in the way. (laughs) It's true. And they want to sell her a service contract for termites that live in the ground. By the way, the drywood termites that fly around, those are not covered. It's only the ground ones. They would have to have suitcases and come down to Florida like with the rest of the folks from the north that move in during the winter, right? I mean, a lot of these are just, like you say, Leslie, they try to scare you uh, into getting into your pocketbook or getting into your wallet to buy these things. Yes, you're technically responsible for the pipe from the meter into the house, but what's the chances of that breaking? Pretty, pretty small.
2: Ellen in New York is on the line and has a flooring question. What are you working on?
3: It's a sub-basement. And it has a cement floor, and, and years ago, I, the, the floor is really, the cement was poured new about 15 years ago, and I put a 12-inch vinyl flooring on top. It's still there and in really good condition, but I want to put something to warm up the area, and I was thinking of maybe an engineered wood floor. Mm-hmm. So two questions. One, do I have to take up the tile? And two, what is the best product to put over a cement floor?
1: Well, you have a lot of options. Uh, first of all, you do not have to remove the tile. You're probably better off just leaving it alone.
3: Yay. Oh, I was hoping you'd <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Secondly, you know, good options for basement flooring is pretty much anything but carpet.
2: <laughs> Area rugs, okay, but not wall-to-wall.
1: Engineered hardwood is an excellent choice. Not solid hardwood, because solid hardwood will buckle and twist. Engineered hardwood is made up of kind of like plywood, different layers of wood that are glued at 90-degree angles to each other. And so they're dimensionally stable. So they'll stay uh, flat without buckling or twisting. Another good choice might be laminate floor for the same reason. You can get laminate floors that look like hardwood or look like tile or look like vinyl. Uh, and they lock together. And both of those floors will float on top of the old floor. So they're not physically glued down or connected. They kind of float. There's usually an underlayment material that goes underneath them. And then you add some baseboard uh, molding or or shoe molding along the edges to cover the the gap.
3: That's fabulous. Now, uh, can I put a radiant flooring under, over the the vinyl tile and under the flooring?
1: Yeah, radiant flooring underneath that is is perfectly fine. And there are products that are designed specifically for that. In fact, there's one that's on the market right now called Perfectly Warm. And it's a radiant floor heating that is designed for products like engineered hardwood and laminate. It basically lays underneath it. Um, It's surprisingly affordable and energy efficient. And in fact, we've got a story about it. Uh, an interview that I did actually with uh, one of the uh, inventors um, at our website at moneypit.com. Check out the top products podcast section. It's uh, a story about perfectly warm flooring. You can hear all about it there with the interview that we did at at Green Build this past uh, year.
3: Oh, great. Thank you so much. I love your show. All right. Well, good
1: luck with that project. It sounds like it's going to be a really good project to tackle this winter and give you lots more usable space and really, really step it up. Great. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit.
2: Well, if you enjoy feeding birds, you probably don't enjoy feeding everything else around your yard, like those squirrels. That's why you should always choose a bird seed that repels squirrels. And there are several on the market that birds love, but squirrels, not so much.
1: Now, if you've got bird feeders, you know how tough it is to keep the squirrels out, but you can try to keep them away by placing your feeders away from trees, from power lines, from porches, or other launching points. Squirrels can actually jump distances of 10 feet or longer. So don't just look at where you're putting the feeder, but look at what's around the feeder.
2: Yeah, now another option is mounting feeders on a smooth metal pole that's at least 6 feet high with no surrounding branches or bushes within 12 feet. I mean, think about it. This is the way that the squirrels get to everything. If they can't climb the pole, they're jumping from a nearby bush. I swear they can fly. I mean, there's definitely flying squirrels across the United States. But squirrels, when they want to get to the feeder, they will find a way. So definitely give yourself space around it. You want to make sure that you've got all of that distance to keep those squirrels away. But also make sure that the feeders have openings that are big enough for birds, but too small for the squirrels.
1: We use a feeder called a squirrel buster, and the way it works is uh, the birds, being very light, can land on the feeder and feed as much as they want, but when the squirrel lands on it, he actually sort of slides this gate down, and it closes off access to the bird seed, so that's kind of fun, but they end up shaking so much loose that they'll uh, actually just sort of eat what's on the ground underneath, and it's funny because they'll be side-by-side side with the birds in the snow eating the seed, so it all works.
2: Eating the seeds that fly out of their mouths.
1: Yeah, we also use a suet feeder, and that's good, too, because a Lock lasts about two weeks. It only costs like a buck. So lots of ways to do that. Keep the squirrels happy, keep the birds happy, enjoy them all winter long.
2: Jonathan in Tennessee, you've got the money pit. What's going on?
3: My question is, is about a split for your house, how to insulate the garage better? Got a cold draft coming through the stairway.
2: I mean, garages generally are cold. I feel like they're kind of like the attic. They're like the outside temperature. I mean, they're designed that way, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's true. They're designed to be at ambient temperature, which is whatever the outside is. Now, the walls and ceilings that separate the garage from the rest of the house, they should be insulated. And uh, if that's the case, then that helps to mitigate some of that. And the reason that you're feeling drafts on the lower floor may be because the insulation wasn't done right or adequate enough, or it could be a heating imbalance. You know, heating the lower floors of his house of that design is, is difficult because he just wants to run up that stairway to the upper floors. So it could be one of two things. Now, the other thing that you can do, because you mentioned that there are drafts, is you could improve the weather stripping around and under the garage doors. They are not designed to be draft-proof. But if you were to improve the weather stripping and on the bottom of the door, there are um, uh, like gaskets that you could put across the entire bottom of a garage door. They're usually rubber and they're thick. And when you bring the garage door down, it compresses it a little bit and makes it really nice and tight. Do that, plus use some additional weather stripping along the inside of the door jamb then I think you might find that you cut back a lot of the drafts that are getting there. So it's a matter of mitigating the drafts, making sure the walls are insulated, and then maybe improving the heating at that level. And that should make you a lot more comfortable in that house, Jonathan.
2: Did you know that Americans take 20,000 breaths a day and spend an average of 90% of their time
1: indoors? That's right. And according to the EPA, the level of indoor air pollutants can be two to five times higher than outdoor air and occasionally more than 100 times higher. Just go to aquatrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U dot com and enter code MONEYPIT at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier when you go to aquatrue.com and use promo code M-O-N-E-Y-P-I-T. Money
3: Pit.
2: Linda, you've got the money pit. How can we help you today?
3: The house that we live in, uh, was built in 53. It's ours. We, we, Paid it off and trying to keep up keep it and keep it in good shape. But in uh, between the dining room and the living room, apparently before we purchased it, there was a wall that had been removed. And the only sign is on the ceiling where the wall was removed. Uh, there's a, a double crack like on each side of a two before is what it looks like about that width in the drywall. And I've tried to use. It's a, a textured sealant. They did. We actually had knockdown put on it, but it uh, we can't fill the crack. We've well, tried to use drywall mud. And it just returns. What can I do to fix this crack?
1: So this was opposite both sides of a wall that was torn out. So they must have slipped in some drywall to to patch it. Is that what you're thinking? Maybe. Maybe. So that's not the best way. That's not the best way to fix that sort of thing. You can't like put a narrow strip in there and have it ever look like a normal ceiling. If you've got a hole like that where you pull the wall out, what you have to do is cut a bigger piece of drywall out, maybe about a foot or two on each side of it. uh, And you do that right on the edge where the floor joists are, the ceiling joists are in this case. Then you have a bigger seam to tape and spackle and secure. And if that's done well, then you're never going to see it again. So you putting all of this spackle on it time and time again over all of this you know all of this period of time is is probably made more of a mess and it's kind of hard to fix at this point. So what I would tell you to do is to cut out that whole repair, put a bigger piece of drywall in, um, tape it, spackle it, prime the whole ceiling, and then repaint the whole ceiling. And that would be the one to do the way to do this you know permanently. Otherwise, you're always going to see that.
3: Okay, thank you for telling me that.
1: Good luck. Thanks so much for calling us at eight eight eight. Money pit.
2: Martin in Wisconsin is on the line with a question about a load bearing wall. What's going on?
3: I've got um, a wall between my kitchen and living room that I'd like to open up, and there's already a doorway there. I'd like to open up and make an open area. And the walls, it's a main support wall, it's a, it's a structural support wall. I want to take out about twelve. The span would be about twelve feet. So, there's a doorway there that's already four foot wide, and so about I'm gonna try and open up another eight foot of it. And I was wondering about like, like structurally if I would be possible to put in like a micro limb, I think that's what they call them. Look,
1: I, I don't recommend this project for the faint of heart or the inexperienced contractor, because it's, it's not the kind of job you should be doing as like, you know, your first foray into home improvement. I can explain to you conceptually how it's done, and let's assume that you have a bearing wall here and you need to disassemble that wall. So the way it is done conceptually is that there is a temporary wall built on both sides of the bearing wall that has to come out. So basically, you're you're building a load-bearing wall On one side of the wall that's coming out, maybe six inches or a foot away, and one wall on the other side, and then once those temporary walls are in place, then and only then do you disassemble the bearing wall. And in terms of that laminated beam, yes, once you put that beam in, it's got to be properly supported. So the ends of the beam have to be sitting on something like another part of the bearing wall so that the load is transferred down to your foundation. So again, it's really a pretty complicated project and one that has to be done right or the consequences are, are pretty devastating. So it can be done, but it's a big project and it's not the kind of project I would recommend you tackle unless you have a lot more experience than it sounds like you have.
3: Yeah, that was, that's kind of my thought about it. I just thought I would uh, reach out to you guys.
1: And- All right. Well, I think you're on the right path now. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit.
2: Devron in Missouri has a question about energy.
3: What can we do for you? I have a 1,450-square-foot home and a split level, and um, our energy bills are like $350 a month, trying to figure out basically where the hole is and how to patch it up.
1: Is that consistent across the year, or is that a winter high or a summer high, or what?
3: <laughs> it seems to be, a win- well, definitely a summer high. We just got through the summer, and we we're um, pretty consistent throughout those three months. Uh, In the winter, usually, uh, most years, it's been around 250 to 300. You know, your question is a good one
1: because a lot of people try to figure out where their home is using the most energy. So I have a couple of suggestions for you. Um, One of which is to contact your local utility company and find out if they have the ability to do an energy audit of your home. Some utility companies, as part of their licensing requirements, uh, will offer services like this for a small fee or sometimes free, where they'll have an energy auditor come to your house and look at all of the ways your home is using energy and give you some advice on where uh, you should be concentrating on your improvements. Short of that, we can always only talk sort of generically but the number one place that you should be trying to make more efficient would be your attic because most homes don't have enough insulation and if you popped your head up in your attic you know what we would want you to see is 15 to 20 inches of of, of fluffy insulation if you don't see that then that's the first place where you're wasting a lot of energy
3: yeah that sounds great thanks for the resources well, if
2: you've ever thought it would be nice to have a studio space in your home that's dedicated to a craft space, workshop, maybe a sewing room, or even art studio, or whatever other hobby you might enjoy, now is actually a great time to get started with your basic planning.
1: Yeah, finding the space is always the first step, but if you're short on that, get creative. For example, think about how you might take advantage of like closet space. With the doors removed, you can actually have quite a big area to work in. In fact, At home, I have a broadcast studio that used to be a coat closet, but the doors were removed. The walls were actually cut back, and now it's a wide-open, enclosed-like alcove, where we have our studio equipment set up. So it's more than just needing a room. You can actually find space wherever it exists. Maybe just parse out some space from a bigger room in your home that doesn't get daily use. I mean, just because it's called the dining room doesn't mean it has to stay that way.
2: (laughs) That is true. Now, when you're planning your room, you want to think about the three most important areas of the room. So it's kind of like a kitchen's working triangle where you've got the fridge, the sink, and the stove in a triangular sort of area so you can very easily go between them. So think about what is the kitchen sink and stove or the kitchen fridge and stove, I mean, it's kind of, this is what you sort of figure out that kitchen triangle is, what makes up that of whatever your hobby is? So if you're a painter, is it, you know, the painting supplies, the easel, and a place that you're looking at the artwork, is if it's a sewing station Is it your sewing work table, the table where you cut all of the fabrics at, and then maybe where you keep all of your threads and whatnot. So you want to think about all of those things that you're using and then make sure you have access to all of them very easily as you're working on your projects.
1: Yeah. And if you're like, let's say you're a woodworker, it might be the table saw, the joiner and the workbench. And just think about when you're designing your studio space that you maintain a short sort of distance between the key workstations. You know, if you're designing kitchens, you pay attention to the working triangle. That's the distance between the sink, the stove and the refrigerator. But in a studio, you also have key workstations. So make sure you mind that distance. If there's going to be certain areas you are going to be walking a lot in between, just keep them in a reasonable distance so that the flow makes a lot of sense.
2: Steve from Illinois is calling in. He's got a question about windows. Now, I know when you get estimates on things, they can be all over the place. So, how do you know what's too high and what's not? Come on, Steve, tell us what's going on. Let's give you a hand.
3: We bought a home and we have a set of windows that go out into the backyard. Several of them are screw out type windows. We got an estimate from Renewal by Anderson for $13,000. And we were just wondering if windows actually are that expensive or if
1: we should shop around. Well, Steve, if you're talking about the entire house, a $13,000 estimate doesn't seem too outrageous. If you're talking about the one side of the house and they're just sort of plain, basically, you say screw-out windows, I'm guessing you mean casements. That sounds really expensive. That would be like, what, 2000 bucks a window? That would be kind of crazy. So I think the best thing for you to do regardless, though, is is to go ahead and get a number of bids. I mean, a Renewal by Anderson is a very good company and a good quality window. But I would turn to the Angie website at angi.com. They have a whole section devoted to replacement window contractors. Uh, Put into that uh, website form what you're trying to accomplish, and you'll get a number of calls pretty quickly. You'll get some additional prices, and certainly you can make a decision from that. And if you want to learn more about, like, what makes one window better than the other, on MoneyPit.com, there is a great post that we put together called How to Choose Energy Efficient Replacement Windows. It walks you through all the standards that you should check for to make sure that it's a good, it's a good window. So I think if you follow that advice, you'll be in pretty good shape. Good luck with that project, and let us know how you make out.
2: Denusa and George is on the line with a heating question. Everybody is chilly this winter. What is going on down there?
0: It's cold. It's very cold and I'm asking, you know, calling about a fireplace. We live in a uh, arts and crafts house and there's a fireplace smack in the middle that faces two ways. The, okay. To the entrance and then opening to what would be the, the kitchen and dining area. The opening to the front door is a fireplace. The other one was at one point blocked. And I know we have two chimneys. My question is: Is it possible, do you think, for me to integrate to open it straight through to make it a one fireplace that would go both ways, or would I have to stick to the way it was built, one way? And so, the in other, other way? words,
1: you would like the fire pit to go straight through from one side to the other?
0: Yes, but I have two f- uh, f- yeah. chimneys.
1: Yeah, I don't think. Top. I don't think so. I don't think you can do that because the structure of this is such that you probably have one physical chimney and then you have two liners, so two flus, okay. and one is on the fireplace side and one is on you know, the other side, or one's on the living room side one's on the kitchen side. So why would you want that to be opened up? Just for aesthetics?
0: Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And my question would be, even if I did it uh, using you know, the gas kind of dealie, or do I still need a, a chimney? for that.
1: I think if you're asking me, can you know, I put a gas fireplace in there where where without venting it? And I would say no. Um, no. Okay.
0: Because yeah,
1: I... well, because there is there are non-vented gas fireplaces. I've never liked them at all. They've always made me very uncomfortable. They do dump a lot of moisture into the house. And uh, you know they're they're allowed here in the States, but I think last time I checked they were illegal in Canada, who is much more conservative about things like this. So I okay. would never use an unvented gas fireplace. Um, I also would not convert those existing wood fireplaces to gas fireplaces because they're going to burn a lot of gas, be really expensive to run. What you might want to do is think about seeing if there was an insert that might be available for uh, the fireplace side because that can have some built-in circulation with a with a vent fan that could uh, improve the heating distribution of that one side. And then you mentioned that one side's blocked. I, I'd like to know why it was blocked, if the chimney is still, the flue is still functional, if it's deteriorated. Maybe it's not lined. I don't know. But you ought to find out why it's in the condition it's in. So I think you need to talk to a good home inspector or a very good um, chimney contractor not a sweep okay and and i want you to be cautious not to find somebody that just wants to sell you a big repair but uh, somebody that can give you some true independent expert advice as to what it's going to take to get this uh, working again okay
0: okay thank you very much that was very helpful because i think the thing that most helped me was about the non-venting thing too yeah i didn't realize how dangerous that could get but thank yeah. you i really appreciate it
1: yeah take that out of consideration all right then a good luck thanks so much for calling us at 888 money pit
0: well if
2: you've ever noticed an odor in your bathroom sink it may be biogas so essentially it's what happens when the bacteria grows in the drain line of your sink
1: Yeah, and the drains can really stink. So an easy solution is this. Just fill the sink with hot water until it reaches the overflow. Then slow down that flow to just a trickle so it still runs down the overflow but not the sink itself. And then add a couple of cups of bleach to the water. The bleach is going to slowly run down that overflow channel and it will also kill bacteria that it finds on the way. Then, after a few minutes, add another cup or two of bleach. Let that drain out slowly so it'll do the same thing for the waistline under the sink and you should be odor-free. You can just let all that water out, turn the faucets off, and it should be a lot easier on the smell.
2: Justin in Missouri is on the line with a bathroom odor. Let me tell you, Justin, I have had the sulfur smell in my bathroom before, and we can help. What's going on?
1: I can't really find the source of the smell. I just smell it sometimes, and it's not all the time, but uh, I've noticed sometimes whenever it's like warmer weather outside and it cools off, I know it sounds funny, but I get this smell. I can't find it. I um, There wasn't a pee trap in the bathtub, and I put one under there. I thought maybe that's where it was coming from, and that didn't
3: do anything. And um, the house was built in 2007, so it's just almost 10 years old. I don't know. It's clean.
1: That's unusual for a 2007 house to not even have a trap under the tub. It makes me question how the rest of the plumbing was put together. But... There's probably two sources that you should explore. Number one is just a decay of of, of biomaterial in the drain. Sometimes you get what's called biogas from all the uh, organic material that gets trapped in the drain and in the threads and in the overflow, like on a like on a bathroom sink. That all gets trapped in there, and that can you know really be quite smelly. So a couple of things you can do there is first of all close the drain on the sink. Fill it up till it starts to overflow and then put some bleach in the water and let it slowly sort of trickle down the overflow for a while. That will kill any material that's in the overflow and then slowly let the water back out into the drain. That'll hopefully kill the rest of it. The other thing is, if it turns out that it's just the hot water, it could be a problem with the water heater. Water heaters have something called a sacrificial anode. And um, that anode, if it's worn, you can end up having a sulfur smell as a result of that. The anode is designed to stop the water heater from corroding or rusting. But if it is um, deteriorated or worn out, you could also get that sort of rotten egg sort of sulfur smell. So I would take a look at the drains first because that's the easiest thing to do and see if you can clean them really good with a bleach solution as I've described. And if it continues, try to figure it out if it's coming from the water itself. Because if that's the case, then I think that anode is most likely the culprit. Okay? Okay. Thank you, sir. You're welcome, Justin. Thanks so much for calling us at 888-MONEYPIT.
2: Nick wrote in saying, it's really cold outside. My hardwood foyer and my tiled kitchen floor, they feel really cold even when I set my heat to 70 degrees. Is it worthwhile to insulate the ceiling joists of my basement?
1: Yeah, it's never a bad idea to insulate a basement ceiling, which in your case is also the kitchen floor. The insulation should also, Nick, extend to the box beam, that's the outside beam, all the way around the foundation, right above the foundation itself. Uh, it would be best to use unfaced fiberglass bat insulation or thermal fiber, which is a mineral wool insulation. And the other area that would help to insulate would be the area in the basement where the walls are above grade. Doing all of that will help make those floors a lot warmer and a lot more comfortable, especially first thing in the morning when you hop out of bed. Oh, man, you must want to jump right back under those covers.
0: It's
2: true. I mean, it really does make a difference when you keep your basement, like, a little bit warmer. It just feels nice on your tootsies everywhere you go.
1: Well, for all the cutting-edge design ideas out there, most of us still follow unwritten design rules. You know, those things that someone at some point decided we should never, ever do. Well, sometimes breaking the rules is a good thing. Leslie's got some ideas for shaking things up in today's edition of Leslie's Last Word. Leslie?
2: Well, you know, whether you've inherited these things from your parents or you just never thought to break these rules, it's definitely time to go rogue on old design rules. So, first of all, you want to start with one of my favorite rules to break. Neutral colors only belong in small spaces. Even if bold colors do make a small space seem smaller, the illusion of having this amazing color in a small space kind of creating this like jeweled box of color Really is exciting. So if you're feeling a bright color or a dark color for a tiny room, I say go for it. Now, somewhere along the line, somebody said master bedrooms should be serious. I mean, they should always be well appointed and very, very serious and not fun. I mean, that's kind of silly. Who says you can't have fun decor in a space like that? It's going to be exciting. It's going to inspire you in the morning when you wake up and get you ready for your day. I mean, who doesn't want to feel energized first thing in the morning? So if you're leaning towards a more playful space or brighter colors or a mix of patterns, go for it. I totally say go for it. Another one, you've got to put your artwork all in a line. It's got to be at eye level. It's got to be very perfect. No way, guys. You can have as much fun on the wall and think about it. You can lean larger frames or mirrors from the floor to the wall. You can mix and match different styles. You can go with, you know, a whole theme of photos from, say, beach vacations and do them in black and white and color or all in black and white or shades of sepia. Nobody says it all has to be the same. You can mix it up. You can mix up sizes. You can mix up frame materials. You can mix up matted frames, non matted frames, things that are canvas mounted on a, you know, a wood stretched frame. All kinds of things work as long as they sort of relate to each other in scale. You're not going like a little teeny postage stamp one next to a gigantic poster, like mix and match it. Work with the scale of things. You can have a lot of fun creating a very interesting gallery space. And when it comes to seating, all of your chairs do not have to match. I mean, everybody remembers from friends, there was all their different dining chairs go for it. You can mix up dining chairs. You can mix up benches. When it comes to a sitting area in a family room or living room, same thing. Two different styles of chairs, two different fabrics. It's a great way to bring in a different pattern, a different tone, a different feel from the space. So definitely put your own touch in your space. Don't be afraid to break rules because what might work for you might not work for somebody else. And that's totally fine because it's yours.
1: This is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of your day with us. Coming up next time on the program, a serious stove can boost your cooking powers, not to mention your home's resale value. But if you're planning to install a commercial range, well, that requires some very special planning. We'll tell you what you need to know on the very next edition of the Money Pit. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Remember, you can do it yourself, but you don't have
2: to do it alone.
3: Money pit.